This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast for your all your new favorite movies here. I'm your host for today, not usually main host, but just a side piece. But with me are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Jake, Adam, and Aid. Why don't you guys say hey to the mutant goons from beyond? Hello, mutant goons from beyond. Doug, that's a very admirable effort for your first time. How does it feel? Was it more exciting than breaking your hymen? I came twice. I need two <laughs> towels. Oh, well, uh, good evening, my squish kittens. It's Autumn. Hi, it's Aid. I'm sorry that Dan had to just flush the toilet behind me. And I can't believe in one minute we already said hymen. So, it's yay. On brand. I mean, this is a children's movie. <laughs> it is clearly not a children's movie. <laughs> is it, though? <laughs> Oh, well, I said, hey, back to you, Aid. You said, hi, men. I said, hey, Aid. Hi, so, men. Oh, it, I get it. That's funny. Uh, That's yeah. words. And I believe That's that you. both Adam and Doug have ingested marijuana today, so we literally have high men. Oh, 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 oh we're getting higher and higher. Ways. Oh, my God. That's why the Ghostbusters 2 again. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I'm going full Jackie Wilson. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it was some hybrid, and then I almost just bought a margarita mix, because today is Cinco de Drinco, if you didn't know. I was just telling Doug that, no, to margarita mix you can make your own yeah just pour a bag mm. of sugar in there and then just shit uh chocolate sauce in there you got <laughs> that's just my mix. psa that's gross no <laughs> okay i'm just well, a gringo verde a gringo verde speaking of improv dialogue we've got a great movie for you well it depends on the viewer here because if you think eraser head is a great movie uh you know then you fall into the twin peaks category which i'm a big fan of but oh, yeah. yeah somehow everybody in my family had a copy of this on vhs i don't know if you guys had it as kids but that is none other than toys from 1992 with robin williams so what do you guys uh got a real quick basic comment after you watch the film let's start with aid what did you think after watching this just a little comment oh the one comment that i had was i can't believe my mom let me watch this when i was a kid because it is so fucked. Let's go to Adam. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know, uh, I kept just trying to compare this to something I was saying, like March of the Wooden Soldiers in Twin Peaks. And I was just watching something Robin Williams called it uh, David Lynch's Babes in Toyland. And it's just it's for a Lynch fan. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. And Jake, I loved this movie as a kid and I was an asshole because this movie is I'm not going to say it's bad. I don't want to start off the episode by being negative. It's just too much. It's too much of everything. I know how everybody feels the first time they hear me talk on this show. Now we're like, gah, because it's just as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, good God, does the suit have to be on fire? Does she have to take pills? It's like there. I have a game set up for all of you at the end of this, and I don't know that you'll ever be the same. You'll never be able to watch this movie certainly again. Uh, well, we're going into maybe it's horror month, so I, I I don't know. I feel like this film definitely maybe it's horror. I'll get to that at the very end. But what I can say is, uh, you 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 watch it once, you'll never forget it because of the imagery. And somehow you see that as a kid, and it just seeps into your subconscious. And the next thing you know, you're having nightmares with elephants flying. You know what I mean? It's just it's like a dream. I think that's really what it is. And dreams can also be nightmares. Hence, why I say, uh, if you think Eraserhead's a horror film, then maybe that falls into that same category with toys. Yeah, I don't think the subject matter is horror. I think it's pro like the production of everything is horror. The imagery is horrific. The weird yeah, step present children. It's all very, it, you know, like you ever walk into a room that's not like a perfect square, but it's mm -hmm. not like a complete trapezoid. And you're like, this feels weird. Or you ever see like a window frame that's not quite right? You're like, huh, 
That's why they say clowns are scary because they're just like people, but a bit off and not just, you know, it's that same principle. The uncanny valley, right? Where it's familiar enough to where I know what it is, but I'm also like, this doesn't. But it's not 100%. This is not it. Yeah. Uh, basically, it's like uh, this is like if you snorted a bunch of Coke, you sh- put your head in like a whole case of peppermints and uh, then a clown <laughs> came in your face with a flower. That's what this movie kind of feels like in terms of imagery. Uh, that sounds fun. And it all feels really cheap and expensive at the same time. Can we talk about that? It really does. Like there's like five sets and they all look grossly overproduced. But then at the same point, I'm like, that looks like painted plywood. What? Well, Aid, what did you what did you say in the discord when we were watching this film? You said it felt like a very expensive trauma movie. Yeah, I was like, what is going on here? And I and I don't remember any of this. I know you said this was unforgettable. I don't like I watched a lot as a kid. I know I did because we rented it all the time. So I just don't remember a fucking thing. Like the only thing I remember is the elephant spitting out the baby doll head. It's like the one thing I remember. So yeah, it is like a trauma movie, except there's like no nudity and no boobs, but it's basically a trauma film. I'm sorry. That's my. I think that's a really apropos because you ever watch a trauma Mm. film and you're like, yeah, this one's not for me. This isn't for my brand of because trauma like for uh, trauma is like a broad brush that you can use, but there's subgenres, right? And I, I feel like I'm much more in like yeah. the, the toxic Avenger subgenre, the Newcomb High subgenre, not so much the terror firmer, right? Where you're like, okay, like I like that this exists, but I'm not the guy. And that's kind of this movie where it's like, I'm not the audience anymore. Was I ever the audience? That's why I think uh, the whole, the Lynch-esque presentation, like, because Doug eats it up, I'm eating it up. Like, I love the quirky visual style. It just clicks with my brain. I think it's just on that kind of frequency. Another thing, though, with this movie, I feel like uh, Doug and I were talking about this. This poster is so iconic. I think people see the poster and they think they've seen it, but they really haven't. But the poster is stuck in their head kind of thing like a mandala yeah, effect where you're sense. like oh yeah i totally it, know what that is and you're like mm, doesn't really exist no brain. you don't you're, you're you're imagining uh sinbad's shazam in your head but you never really saw it kind of well, thing it's it's Completely. like the same poster effect too i mean this could also be like say if it was like a vinyl album or something like that like it was you know like the one with um twisted sister where you have um you have him eaten the the leg of meat everyone's seen that one but have they actually listened to that album you know what i mean it's, it's one of those things like oh i can pick that out or the Beatles walking across the street. My dad had the cassette. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like mm-hmm. something iconic like that. Cause it's just very Devo in, in the, it's photo here. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Just the hard colors, hard shapes. It's, it's very specific presentation. I dig it. There's so many new wave bands that like you watch this and you're instantaneously reminded of like Doug said, Devo one that I've always thought of was talking heads. You know, so much. I so was just going to say it when I equate this, like when I listen to this song, like once in a lifetime, when I was a kid, I thought that was Robin Williams at certain points at like when he's doing like the weird, like talking proselytizations. And then you watch this movie and you literally get a music video. You're like, what is happening here? It's like talking heads meets new order. It's it's yeah, yeah it's spot on. Was it strange love triangle with the like the shapes, people slapping each other and shit? I think so, something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and they dress like every uh, every wannabe rich but poor hipster in Silver Lake. That's kind of how they dress with yeah, the right? red coats and stuff. Yeah, it's all secondhand, <laughs> but it also cost a billion dollars. Oh God, the designer thrift stores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. So uh, one thing I do want to say, okay, so maybe it's horror. So we got into that and how it's very Lynchian. And and I feel like this is a movie that, you know, let's just go ahead and get into the story here. Cause if you guys haven't seen it, you guys probably haven't seen it because you know, like I said, you, you probably know the VHS or that poster from somewhere. So the film Mm. is very, very simple in what it tries to deliver in terms of a message or even a story. Cause it's just very non-cohesive with, uh, with what it basically it's giving you, a story, but it's very small and it uses images to tell its story, if that makes sense. Like, or more like, mm-hmm. more like working on emotions, yeah. which I think that's a good way to, to kind of put it because it's using images to push more, like, even what the dialogue is. Because honestly, Robin Williams improvises most of his scenes here. They're pretty funny. Some of them are like, yeah, you know, I think they just let a camera roll on him and he just kind of improved on the spot and everyone had to kind of act like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good part of the script too, or that was a funny joke. I think a lot of it, like, it just, the visuals it's just like his father says before he passes like about the the spinning beanie he's like it's whimsical and i think that's what makes this movie it's just it's weird it's this nightmarish fever dream that is so heartwarmingly sweet it's i don't know it's just it's it's whimsical yeah what it really felt like too because the thing is what makes this movie so scary it's like for me i used to have like nightmares of the the uh, windows xp background because that's what it reminds me yes oh my god yes yeah, that so was I, it. it it was a weird mix of like the windows xp background and the um there was like this screensaver maze on windows 95 that you go through these brick walls and there's a smiley face at the end just weird stuff that i kind of connected with this film like jake says i make uh <laughs> you know these weird universes that combine together well yeah if you look at barry levinson when he wrote this so he'd also done like high anxiety and silent movie with mel brooks uh, he would yeah. did Tootsie and stuff. So he had this very on the nose comedic style, which sure it might be somewhat absurdist, but it's still a very linear comedic path. And so then you get to this movie and you're like, what is this? And like, I guess he kind of starts to fancy himself an artist at a certain point because his directorial debut, he'd also written that movie. He got nominated for an Academy Award for that. By this point, he'd already won an Academy Award for Rain Man, and he'd been nominated for two other ones that he didn't get for directing. So it's just crazy to me like that he has this weird, like kind of generic, for lack of a better term, comedic writing style and an incredible art direction style. And he tried to marry those two things together. Like you ever have two really good friends of yours and you're like, man, if I get the three of us in a room together, it's going to be a fucking party. And those two friends are like, I don't care that you exist. And it's just awkward. Yeah. That's what this movie yeah. is to me. Cause he like tries to bridge his gap, like the, the old stuff with the new stuff. And it's just, uh, it feels like oddly juvenile and nostalgic, but also perverse. It's weird. It is a hodgepodge. Like the thing I kept thinking about, we keep going back to Lynch with the visuals because like this came out in 92. This is right when twin peaks basically finished up its initial run. I think that was even before fire walk with me came out. I could be wrong, but the thing was, I was thinking, is he kind of just following this trend because that was so popular at the time. But then I read this movie was in development for 10 years. So I was like, is this some sort of kooky eighties impressionist thing that is now blended with now the nineties and just, it does. It's such an amalgamation. Oh, it's, I can it's see that, especially something. with the music video for sure. I right? can see that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, as if, you know, I got one shot to make my perfect movie. You know how so often you hear, see a director's cut and it's just bloated and like kind of, it's not for me as the audience. It's for you, the director, to put out your idea. Psycho Gorman. 
There you go. Or uh, Psycho Gorman. But this worked for me. Well, mm. There are tons of movies where it's just like, let's cut it. Like the camera should have stopped 10 minutes ago and everything. And this is one where it was obviously a passion project and you finally get it. Like, for instance, Zack Snyder's like four by three aspect ratio. Like that's not for us as the audience. That's just his thing that he wants to do. Right. But he spent yeah. five years campaigning and millions of dollars to do it. So he finally got to do it. And you're like, all right, that's clearly not for us. And that's what this movie is. It's, it's clearly not for us. It's for him. It's like him and his in jokes because he worked with Robin Williams a lot, too. But yeah. it's just hard yeah. to believe that this was like a, a, a passion project for 10 years. So basically from 1982, it's like, you know, you're, it's like, oh, yeah, I made this movie. I made Rayman. I made this. I made this. Let's just make toys now. That's what I really want to get to. That's the fun stuff. You know, good for him, though, because, I mean, he had the successful career before he did this. And this wasn't career suicide for him because he, he kept going on and doing more projects. I mean, he's still working today solidly. And yeah. Good for him. Well, I mean, you look at Rain Man and you look at this and you're like, um, this, yeah. this is it's but there's there's things about it. I do like the theme of this movie. And I feel like it's a little bit ahead of his time with some of the some of the things that they talk about. So I, I don't interrupt you, Doc. So you, you go ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna say, what was your idea of the theme? Because my my idea was just like, oh, you gotta you gotta learn to be responsible and, and stop acting like a child because Basically, his dad left him. He's like, oh, I'm going to have him. I already know he's going to ruin the company. So you got to grow up, grow your 45 year old ass up. And, you know, <laughs> I know there's one thing about Robin Williams. He always looks so much older than he is. Right. How old um, is he? He just has that look. Yeah. He always looks like know. a dad. He looks very handsome. And my he looks very handsome there. Like, I feel like, hey, Robin, I have a Jim doing? Barney picture. that looks just like that, where he looks like a complete stud. So, I mean, any guy can photograph well, so long as but they don't like, have. If you look at him and Mark and Mindy, he still looks old angles. Yeah. Nanu Nanu looks more like Nan old Nan old. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, so um, but no, th that you're correct. Doug. That is one of the themes. Another one of the themes of the movie is talking about violence and how it's marketed towards children as well. Mm. I was getting from that. Right. Because of the war toys. I guess another one I would talk about, too, is the fact that, you know, families are not all the same mold, right? Because we have Elsatia, we have Leslie, and then we have their uncle. Then we have, you know, his son, who's clearly black, right? So the you uncle's know, this, British. He's British, right? So we've got like families don't come. About it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and like all of his scenes, like I just checked out. Whenever he started talking, I'm like, oh, fucking A. Like he's going to sit and talk for another 20 minutes. We'll talk about the time later, but no, that's definitely one of the themes I think is the fact that like all families are different and not all of them look the same. Like everyone can look different. Like I thought that was, so there's some really nice themes in here, like a good message to this film. So that's what I'll yeah. say about it. Yeah. See, and that's good. Cause everyone has an, a known, uh, their own version of this movie because I didn't pick up on like marketing violence towards children because it clearly didn't work for me when I was playing twisted metal too. And I was like five or six. <laughs> 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 Little did you know you were driving around an actual ice cream truck wasting motherfuckers. Yes, yeah, see, I didn't know to this day. And that's why I think clowns are fun. But that's why the kids are playing <laughs> the video games in the film, right? Because they didn't understand what they you were know? doing, had any repercussions. But this is what we market towards children when we when we make fake guns and we make these things, you know, which is why you probably don't see the fake guns anywhere, but even nerf guns, like you're like marketing this thing towards the kid to like shoot each other with them. You don't quite understand what they're doing. And so the yeah. film doesn't quite understand what it is. So I feel like there's a parallel there. I don't know. 
it's so ahead of its time with the concept of like drone warfare. And now they're be, they're basically making a cult of children, child oh. soldiers. No, but another theme too is, is how employees are treated in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's yep. another theme too, because the employees are very happy and they're happy to be there. And, and the minute, you know, you start shitting on them and then you're treating them like crap and then they're lowering the pay and whatever. It all goes like, to hell. Exactly. So I feel like that's another great theme. And these are all things that we still deal with now. And so for being 92, it's just what, almost 30 years ago. Oh, <laughs> oh God. God. Yeah. yeah. Um, almost 30 years ago. Yeah. We're still dealing with the same shit. To reinforce that idea mm-hmm. was the um, the fake vomit room. That was just <laughs> such a representation of just everything getting yes. more claustrophobic, just the rules closing in. And that's just like somehow it feels like working for these corporations that keep implementing new rules, new securities. It's closing in you know? on you. And also they do touch on race because the, the Asian uh, work employee was talking about why is this vomit white centric or whatever mm-hmm. like you yeah, know very just, anglo-saxon a very anglo <laughs> yeah, and it just, just like that was awesome you can pick up more <laughs> from that imagery like i said uh i think the best way to kind of put this movie is if willy wonka had a gang bang with tim and eric and then uh david lynch was there to clean up the jizz i, I feel like that's kind of what the what it amounts to really yeah all right tim <laughs> it's time to stop jizzing this feels like Barry Levinson's attempt at making his own Willy Wonka, right? Like mm. he establishes I this like that. world that he completely, sorry, it juxtaposes with real life because you have fish out of water in this phantasmagorical area. The whole world is not this. Zevo Toys is this. You know, the whole world mm-hmm. is not Willy Wonka, just this factory. And I th- that's the movie I kept comparing it to. But one of the things that a lot of people, we talked about it, we almost did Willy Wonka for this month for the specific purpose of that movie is horrific. Not only do you see a chicken's mm-hmm. head cut off, you see a complete rampant disregard for life and livelihood. This Just the imagery is really intense. And that's another thing with this where I wonder if stylistically he was trying to do too much because Levinson did do some horror. Like he arguably the sphere is a horror film. The Bay is a horror film. So he knows what imagery is. I think this is meant to be unsettling. I, I truly do. Right. And I think, I think it's kind of oh, after you, you, Terrence. No, after you. Thank you, Adam. Uh, no, but honestly, I think the biggest, the, the first indicate, well, there's others, but one of the biggest indications for me with the unsettlingness, and I wonder, unsettlingness, that's not the word, just kidding, but the unsettling part of this film, and it sort of reminded me of Us, because Us has the same sort of trope, and a lot of people don't like that movie, but whatever, is when they're all dancing in the factory at the beginning, and I think I discussed this earlier with with all of you with the sensual that's, music that song but the song is like a as a as in a wrong key they're supposed to be happy it's a weird key it's in and then none of them are dancing in rhythm with it so mm. that bothered me the same in the beginning with the christmas part the, cri- the christmas like, song what? actually the pointed that out was the christmas like what is that like i mean i guess it came well, out in December. Not, like all right it, yeah i know it was like Sorry, the only Dad. reason i feel <laughs> 
No, I feel like like the I, I even have my notes here that the uh, the Christmas part is cringy. It's like Barry Levinson's just like, oh, I want to put my kid in this his school pageant play. So let's record that for the mm. opening. And, and all then, the people in the audience are just like, well, we, we supported your kid. We sat through that. So, you know, they're all <laughs> clapping like this is a great performance and the kids are flubbing it. The kids in the tree are not happy. What's, like, what the fuck is going what on? fucking weirdo as an adult wants to be exalted a bunch above like children to do a song solo on a tree that is yeah. like so and i think it's meant to be a commentary on people's performance and self-aggrandization and it's just it's perverse it just feels so uncomfortable yeah. well here in orlando we do the singing christmas trees every year at that big <sighs> <laughs> mormon church over there <laughs> people actually do that like i don't know if you've ever seen those performances but i'm like is this the singing fucking christmas tree it's like oh my god and it's not Florida unless they eat a face in front of the audience right? oh i know that's true yeah at the church and all anyway but yeah i agree no, with you uh, jake to go back to that part about um just saying that's how it is at zevo and like the real world outside isn't like that but still the zaniness of Z- zevo the whole factory and everyone in it it's just it's completely bonkers but they play it so remarkably straight like it's it's bonkers but it's still just not out of the ordinary to anyone it's weird it's the whole cult mentality like people wouldn't piss yeah. in bottles but you have the cult mentality of amazon and you normalize these things that are just odd but when you think about that i think that's one of the things that makes a great satire or commentary on like society is the fact that you kind of show how absurd so many things are like how absurd yeah. is it that, that an adult is pandering above children. How absurd is it that we're spending how much money on this? How absurd is it that you look in the audience and it's a very, very minute amount of people? And what's really weird, yeah. this scene versus Hook, which came out a year before this, where there is a theater scene, which has emotion yep. and consequence and validity and breadcrumbs foreshadowing. Oh. And this is like, hey, that happened. This has awkward. That's yeah, all it had. Just pure cringe, really. Like when I was watching it, Yahira came down. And she's like, oh, God, this is cringe. I'm like, I know. It's what, I don't know why I'm embarrassed, but I am. It's like, don't look I away. I said the same thing. Yeah, I was probably going to say, I wasn't telling her, oh, let me put back Pornhub on there. Uh, you know, I'm not watching <laughs> the intro. <laughs> Let's make this a little more civil. <laughs> I'll explain myself. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And another thing, too, I wanted to say, like going back to why maybe it's horror. Just basically the whole idea with this man child. And the thing is what it felt like to me. Have you guys ever seen shock treatment? It's like the sequel to Rocky. Yes. Yeah. That's what it felt like where everything's in a fucking. Yeah. I know there's supposed to be a factory, but it feels more like a soundstage. Like Jake was saying that a lot of the props look fake. It just feels like you're in this loony bin far away from anything, like in the middle, in the middle of Oregon or somewhere like that. And you're just in this loony bin and you're going there to visit as the viewer. And then all these people, you know, the, the general, uh, the dad, uh, Leslie, all, and all these characters in the movie are just fucking crazy people that escape from their cells and they're roaming the asylum free. But it's a it's a job that you're stuck at as a viewer. It's like, OK, well, I'm going to hold you hostage for two hours and you're going to go and play nice with these crazy people in the loony bin while we lock you away. And that's just what it feels like when it comes down to horror with me. It's like being at, you know, like a family member's house during Thanksgiving. It's like, oh, we got to spend the night for 24 hours and you're stuck with all these fucking crazy people. And it's just that's the kind of horror it puts you in anxiety. Seriously, horror, if that's a thing. 
No, that's totally it. I kept going to basically bouncing between cult and just especially with Alsatia, just it, uh, like how drugged she's like the whole like the vitamin sandwich, just a sandwich full of pills. Like it felt like a drug induced fever dream, like someone could be in a coma. And this is him living this out in his own like nightmares from pills. But it just you could see him waking up and being feeling. like, and you were there and you were there. Exactly. Um, it's Wizard of Oz from Hell in a sense. Movie. Okay. Well, but just the whole thing where you don't even see society out of it. It's just rolling green hills that go on forever, as far as you can tell. Like you you're know stuck it's in the there. Windows XP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like a threat. Like this, like this is, you know, it's not real. And the kids don't act like, you know, kids aren't saying that this is weird, but they're not like saying this is normal either. And I think that their fixation with violence and video games is meant to be a commentary that outside of this bubble is normal life. And normal life, when you put it compared to this, is so severe and so violent. When in actuality, we're so anesthetized to it, we don't really give a shit. What reminded me of, have you ever seen when Drew Carey did that show where they did improv, but then they used like flash animation to like put in the stuff that they were like miming? It was a really yeah. terrible short line. It was after no. whose line? Well, I guess between oh. whose lines. It was it's, a weird thing. I watched one episode. It was bad. It's really awkward Ew. and uncomfortable. And not just as a guy who's done improv. Like I've shown it to other people. I'm like, this is bad, right? And naturally it ended very quickly. But it feels like this. Nothing feels real. And like Doug said, if you, you know, this feels like a loony bin. If at the end he woke up and he was just some guy working at a toy factory being like, man, I, I really wish that I could make the next big toy. And it's just him just destitute and alone. I'd be like, yep, this movie makes perfect sense. Yeah. And that's yeah. why that poster is kind of iconic. The way I see it, too, it's like nothing makes sense. And you're stuck in this brain. You're going into the character's brain. You as the viewer are going into this movie. You're the, you're the, the science subject that we're going to test out this. You're just seeing a series of images, but it's scaring you personally if because, if, you know, you're getting sucked into this brain. You can't come out for two hours. Well, let's yeah. talk about this. I mean, the there, hole in his head. I mean, he could have been lobotomized right yeah. there. I mean, you know, but there's a big problem. That's not the only poster. The other poster is him within his head, within his yeah, head, within like, his head. So there's yeah. the Inception you're version. Right. And then there's this one. So each one of those has a wildly different interpretation. One is to say he's entirely vapid and you're only seeing this like through him. And one of them is that this is delusion upon delusion upon delusion. I mean, it's so there's so much you could extrapolate to like this could be your senior thesis for a doctorate and you could get like two PhDs and defend this twice. There's so much to say. And the fact that it starts and ends with that elephant snowing on the factory, it's just like rinse, repeat. It's like, is this just is it stuck in some sort of mental limbo yeah. loop? Yeah, it's a, it's a snow globe at the exactly. end. If there's like nothing there, like in this cover behind Doug, like he's nothing inside like it's just right yeah like so i said it's like, it's only like he has nothing yeah he's he just a lens that it, passes yeah. through otherwise it's this nefarious layers upon layers where you one of my favorite quote from the joker of all time is in considering my history i've always preferred multiple choice one of the best the idea that he is so crazy he doesn't know where crazy ends or he's so nefarious he doesn't know where nefarious ends and you know here you have a guy who is a complete man child who's completely castrated who's completely self-serving and you have all of these things each one of those makes an unreliable narrator you Side add them note, everybody if you haven't read three jokers make that a priority 
Okay. That was just my little interjection. <laughs> that was fine. your little pitch there. <laughs> so yeah, that's, so when it comes down to it, you are you are the experiment. You as the viewer are witnessing the horror, even though it's not. So that's why I think like it's just. Uh, well, here's the thing. What you said, Jake, was a full mouthful of like like encyclopedia. <laughs> The thing is, when this came out in 1992 <laughs> on Christmas, books for teeth. It's yeah, PBS. Okay, yeah, well, PBS. Yeah. The only thing, though, that was a lot of stuff. That's like you said, you could write a whole thesis on it. But was the audience ready for it? Because this came out in December 1992, and yeah. uh, this is when Aladdin was out and everything. And the people that saw this, like, because the the trailer and the commercials for it made it look like Willy Wonka, literally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like just whimsical and, and fun. But when people were going into it, you think they were just walking out saying like, oh, God, I wasn't ready for like being stuck in the uh, the what, the red room from uh, Twin Peaks. It's like yeah, being exactly. Stuck in the room with that midget. So, well, here it like, just like it had such weird competition too. like that. Anyone saw this is unbelievable. Yeah. Muppets Christmas Carol. You're talking about yeah. a Christmas movie. You want extra. You want zany. You got the Muppets and one exactly one Robin Williams does not compete with the cast of the Muppets. I'm sorry. It just doesn't happen. And then all the other movies that came out were either adult or horror or what have you. And you go to the month. Robin Williams was competing with himself. Did you notice that? Because he was in Aladdin. Aladdin. That was like the big thing. And didn't he get in trouble with Disney? Because he asked them to stop, like to not include him in so much. As the genie and trailers, is what I read. I don't know if this yeah. is true, but he was trying to like make sure that they didn't market him really with Aladdin, and Disney did it anyways, and so it was like a whole thing. Um, so there, there's that. I mean, but everything else that came out, it's not even that. It's like it's more you're marketing this towards children, and your parents take you to see this. Like, is this movie going to like, for example, Jake? If you took your children to see it, will this movie hold their attention? either hyperactively or not at all it's okay. that's the hard thing this is why i hate bullshit interpretive art right i hate going to modern art museums and it's like a splatter of paint because mm-hmm. either you're supposed to be completely mesmerized or it's completely garbage right and mm-hmm. this yeah. there's enough craft here to where i am fixated and i think that my daughter would be very confused and try and figure it out but i could also see if just nothing ever hooked her you know, and think mm. about the huge thing when it comes to theatrical release specifically. This is not Christmas. This a couple of trumpeted mm. snow does not a Christmas movie make. This movie was competing with Home Alone two, mm-hmm. exactly at Christmas Carol in December, well November and December. But I mean, the holdover from Home Alone two is still very prevalent here. This it makes no sense to put this out here. I I think maybe some executives like oh toys Christmas I don't know, but it just. I can't imagine taking my kid to see this, even if I hadn't seen it, because I watched just the trailer and I'm like, nah, this is it's a VHS not, it, movie. It's not a Christmas <laughs> Would, movie. And even the Christmas scenes all. are very disjointed. They're disjointed like they don't belong in the movie. Yeah, the, exactly. the beginning and the end. It, none of it belongs. Even when you're watching the beginning and then you see the, the cut to the car driving up, and you know, it's Uncle Coming like. What the fuck is that? And I don't revisit that. I'm like, I don't understand. Not a single mention through the middle of it. I feel like they shoved that in there so they could release it at Christmas and like hope for the best. That feels like a reshoot because it doesn't look like the rest of the movie. It's Mm -hmm. all the props, all the costumes look very linear by comparison. The people on the stage are dressed less weird than the characters in the rest of the film. Let me Mm -hmm. bring it back to horror for our audience. If we had Halloween, right? And we just have Michael Myers kill someone on Halloween as a little kid. 
and we never have anything come back as Halloween. Do you think the name Halloween makes it a Halloween movie? No. That's what this movie is. Just because you have a buzz at the beginning that's Christmas, the fact is the rest of the movie is post-Christmas, so it is not a Christmas movie. The climax of the film has to be on Christmas, hence Nightmare Before Christmas being a Christmas movie. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you dick. Well, the, the, the music, the music <laughs> with this Sorry, too Doug. doesn't even... Sorry, oh, Doug. go ahead. But no, you're wrong and you're always going to be wrong and I don't care what you say and that's the last thing I'm going to say about this because it is a fucking Halloween movie. So you cut Doug off when he's about to get into critical Continue, analysis Doug. so that you could just say your yes. opinion. Your opinion's I, wrong. I, I use facts. My opinion is not wrong. I, 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 I've surveyed plenty of people. Doug, what your were you saying about is... the music in this film, bud? I had some feedback. I'm so sorry, Thanks. Doug. I'm sorry, Doug, Giving that Jake Doug triggered back me. The, the conversation. Oh, hey, that's fine. I'm, just, you know, uh, I'm, no give, I'm giving Doug yeah. the conch Cheers, back. Cheers, motherfuckers. <laughs> Actually, it's you brought up a good point. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up a good point on bringing the conch back. What this felt to me. It, okay. Do you guys remember that SpongeBob episode where they're in the kelp forest? <laughs> And they have the magic conch cell and, yes. and Squidward's always getting no. And then uh, what it felt like to me was like I was Squidward and this movie was SpongeBob and Patrick. And then when they introduced new characters, you think they're normal, like the general. And then he just turns out to be like the uh, the 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 the, uh, the guy who rescues them at the end. He's like magic conch shell. You mean like this? And his eyes go across. It's like everybody in this movie's fucking crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah, but, oh, but now let's oh, go man. back to the music here. The music in that opening and the fucking cringy is just Christmas. I even hate that music. Like that music's embarrassing. But none of that sounds like the Hans Zimmer music. None of it sounds like any of the stuff that's in, you know, like happy workers. You know, it's it just does not fit. It's like you're watching the movie Heavy Metal, and then all of a sudden they show uh the intro starts off with the Care Bears. Heavy metal yeah. works so fucking hard. Oh, yeah, we got to do that one, too. That one. We got to do that one. I, okay, you know how I always talk about how I have a shit ton of notes that I never talk about when it comes to these movies? I had a whole riff prepared when we did Ghostbusters Month about my love of heavy metal and how intertwined those are. I was kind enough, Adrian, to see this is an experience in restraint. So just yelling about a movie is not what you're supposed to do. Doug, let's continue, friend. Uh, Is there any music that you do like or is all of it unsettling? I do like the happy workers song because it changes as the movie progresses once the, you know, the army starts going over. But then I also like the who, ha, who, ha, like, yeah. <laughs> but see, after seeing this now, like it, it's been a few years since I've seen it. But as a kid, we had the tape and we'd always fast forward it to an hour and a half in, like when the whole kind of ball and dolly thing happened. Because um, it just feels like a completely different movie after an hour and a half. Now, I mentioned with yeah. our chat that the happy workers song has a weird sensuality to it. Like uh, wild sex in the working class oingo boingo, and I and and Adrian tried to make me feel like I was a pervert for that. But let me ask you, Adrian, are you, you are. are you are you what? trying to tell me that Myra Ellen Tori Amos is not a sexual creature, and I am not to take her as such? Okay, whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like doing that dance for the happy workers. <laughs> That that's like a trauma thing where everyone's just dancing in the streets. And and I mean, I even got a boner from the music too, like when that thing's tongue comes out, you know. See? Oh god. <laughs> it is meant to be yeah, that's, unnerving. It is. It's like eight different flavors of early 90s music to the score. It's like you get that weird almost pop reggae, but almost like a dark spin, like a minor note to the song. And then you get more it's there's just so much. Like in the happy worker song, aren't there like 
tribal drums almost do it it's and then they're like singing to it and their lips aren't really matching with it and that's what reminded me of us because remember that was one of the indications that you knew that she was the other because she couldn't snap with sorry there's like sirens going off because now i live in the ghetto um <laughs> that's like, okay i live near el monte anyway so it's not here else. <laughs> someone else just got it in your parking garage <laughs> but terrible. And yeah, then, yeah, to adam's point it, it reminds me of ace of bass a little bit which adrian you should like because we listen to music like that in the bad batch so see i remember Hi. everything oh, and i give everyone oh, a little bit oh okay our debut feature of Ace of Base, yes. I like to think that the Bad Batch in this movie take place in the same universe. And on one side of the fence, it's happy workers. And then the other side, it's a dystopian <laughs> wasteland where Jason Momoa is eating people. I know, but he looks Anyone? so good when he does it. <laughs> this, you know, Jeff Bezos probably made his workers watch that scene over and over again. <laughs> All those cucks who sold out and were like, no, I don't want to unionize. Yeah, so <laughs> Jeff Bezos is like, listen to the Happy Worker song and here's some piss bottles you can pee in while you're on the line since you can't go to the bathroom. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, anyways. <sighs> and then an- another movie too I wanted to relate this to was, it reminded me of Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So like like kind of just that same imagery. That's one thing I'm like, oh yeah, Edward Scissorhands. But if you were stuck inside the set of shock treatment. So yeah, that's that's the little funny breakdown there. You mentioned that. The Edward Scissorhands thing, because uh, Jawbreaker had a scene that felt the same way. Oh, yeah. Like when they were doing the Fern makeover, like uh, I felt that was a very Edward Scissorhands scene. So well, maybe it was just cool, a 90s thing. Movie. Everyone was kind of waxing their own carrot. To the that 90s stuff. Like, did have a lot of old like throwback to 50s stuff. And it's kind of interesting. It reminds me of Joni Mitchell when it's like the little pillbox houses and this kind of pastel or like over like simplified, like colored schemes where everything's hyper colored it has this weird antique element to it but then it's also everything just feels askew and so that's one of the great things about edward scissorhands you're dealing with a lot of very simple iconography when it comes to his hedge work right and so that Mm -hmm. in this movie parallels so nicely because in this movie you have all of these images that aren't necessarily meaningless but they don't further the plot it's just imagery so it sticks out in your head a lot differently yeah, it definitely takes weird. a set piece over the story, in my opinion. But what you know. story, Doug? Tell me the story of this film. Oh, it's it's uh, it's <laughs> it's like the I got tell some friends story, and I'm Doug. gonna write a story about how you can always be yourself and you can always be at war is bad. Okay, here's some credits. <laughs> here's a script. So that's kind of how I feel like it was written. Um, but <laughs> you know, just a big mess of credits. It's like, okay, we got a theme. It's you got to outgrow your childhood innocence, but don't become a, a bad war guy. You know, war is bad, but make sure you outgrow your innocence and uh, you'll you'll get laid eventually by one of your workers. So this oh. is what happens when you pair a guy who had been nominated for two Academy Awards for writing and his then wife who wrote an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Hmm. Oh, God, my head's spinning. That's Those confusing me. Were, uh... You know, she was actually in, I have to say this, uh, Valerie Curtin. A lot of people get it twisted. They think that hunky action star Arnold Schwarzenegger was the first man to be depicted as a pregnant individual. Not true. Billy Crystal was in Rabbit Test, which features her. She didn't write it. She was in it. But I've seen mind it. blown. Mind blown. The eyes are in the back of my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's how uninteresting trivia. her career is. That I'm talking about a movie that starred yeah. someone else. So you put her, Bill Crystals. A, it's just weird. 
So I guess the, the point is, Doug, can, can you yeah. tell me the story? Because I feel like if if it takes you two sentences to tell me this story, I think that you're failing. Okay, she well, slept her way into this job. Doug, you're not failing. Can you please just tell us what you want to say? Thank I know you. I'm doing. I'm doing like the movie, waiting you, wait, waiting, waiting for you to enjoy the hour and a half until the big action scene yeah, right. starts. So, <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. I'm just, uh, I'm just gaslighting. But uh, and, okay, so if you need a story for it, basically what it comes down to is this toy maker and his father run this company. His father dies, and basically he wants his son to grow up because he's been spoiled and you know has a, a spoiler robot sister. So everything's just kind of fabricated and made for him, and he can't grow up. And uh, gets it over to his brother, who's a, an army general. And he's like, OK, we know the army general is going to fuck the factory up. So, you know, he's going to make war toys. And isn't that everything you stand for? So you got to prove yourself that you want to be the uh, manager of this company. So, yeah, be, be the man of the company, but still keep the whimsy. Yeah. So it's kind of like a 45, 50 year old coming of age story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and and not even coming because they have to bring in Robin Wright to. To, to grab his attention. So basically she's oh, he was been coming hired. in that one scene. She's been hired. Oh, I don't even want to know. She's been hired to like basically, you know, catch his attention, which yeah, which like you know, is a woman's perspective. That's a lot of men because they don't like want to settle down. They don't want to do this, they don't want to do that, right? So and don't say they just need the right woman. There are just some people who don't want to settle down. Women are the same way because, you know, some of us don't want to deal with all that bullshit. So what I'm saying here, I'm I'm sorry. I've had too many margaritas, but I, I have a good point. My thing is, is that he is treated like a child. But when anytime he speaks in this movie, I don't feel like he's a child. I don't feel like yeah. he doesn't know what he's doing. I feel like he knows exactly what he's doing and the way he's talking to Robin Wright, like he's joking around with her and how pretty is she in this movie? She, she is gorgeous is in this movie. Beautiful. Who oh knew the gosh. Southern draw worked on her? The it princess does. from yeah. the bride. It's so good for you know, her. Like Jenny. that was like, she, I, I probably, yeah, even with Jenny, like this, I think she's like the most beautiful in this role. And she really, she's like a, she's she's like a hot Clarice oh. Starling. Yo, <laughs> I like that. But another thing, though, kind of going back with her, I just felt that was like another very cult element, like she was picked for him. And it's like he's being well, groomed. But, it, but that's what yeah. I'm saying. But it's not even that he's being groomed. It's like his father hired her to like sort of get him out of his bullshit. Like he just, you know, yeah. grow up. Kind of culty. Be a mm-hmm. fucking man. Do your thing. And, um, you know, he met her and then he finally did it. So what does that say about that? Mm. Okay, so here's my thing. The dad is the smartest person in this movie. The guy with the blinking light mastermind. <laughs> this whole thing is very purposeful. This, every single you can you will never convince me that this was not a thought exercise to get his son there. He picks yeah. the woman, he picks the successor, he knows his brother, he knows that his father is still alive. He knows Completely all of these things. Completely premeditated. The whole thing is just for it's a vessel for him. There's no question in my mind. Like, yeah, so he's like he's like jigsaw for his son. He's later exactly. like the first saw movie. It's like, oh, he was in the room the whole time. Yeah, enjoy so. your life, son. Here, I'm gonna show you how to cherish what you have and live it to the fullest. Put your penis in this copy room clerk. She's a duplicator. 
huge. That's what copy. Can we talk about her getting copyboarded. <laughs> that scene was twisted. He like shoves her face, and he's in there with her. What is that? I don't even know. Even Dude, know. the improv with all the copies afterwards, the Michael Jackson before and after. Like, oh my god! <laughs> Can you even, is he allowed to say that? Like, is he allowed to say I, that? Yeah, that's Michael when I, Jackson bleached himself. So yeah, it, oh he did it to himself. Um. But like that's when I had to pause because that was just so purely Robin Williams just improving and riffing, and it it hit me so hard like how much I miss him. I know, and you moment. just like you look at this beautiful face, right? And doesn't it make you so nice. sad? Like when I when we when you know when, when I found out, I remember exactly where, was, exactly where I was sitting, and I just started crying. Like I don't, I just started crying. Like he is our whole childhood for all four of us. He is our childhood. He is. Peter Pan. He's Mork and Mindy. He's everything. And now he's gone. And it's like, what, what do our children have after this? Right? Like, it's just, it's just so, like, it just breaks my heart, which is another horrific thing about this movie, because you see him doing all of this improv and all these amazing things. And even like in um, Dead Poets Society, which is my favorite movie with him, he's just, he's brilliant. And and we don't have them anymore. And I'm, I'm going to cry yeah. right now thinking about it. Anyways, let's move on. No, and just, you know, how his whole thing was, he came in and saw Robin right in the copy room, pulled her off there and was like, hey, how about a smile? And it's just, he was always there doing whatever he could. And I mean, he was, he was dying inside himself. He just depression and stuff like that. And he just always wanted to make people smile. And it's just, he, it's a hero, you know, and uh, yeah. He was the man of the year. Yeah, with same uh, Barry Ooh. Levinson, too. So did you guys get a little bit of a plot from that? Because there's a lot more with that where it introduces basically just this cast of crazy people. And uh, like I said before, it's like you're stuck at a uh, you're, you're stuck in the loony bin. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, Don't Look in the Basement, that old Grindhouse 70s film. That's really what it feels like. She goes for that job. And she realized at the end of the movie, man, everyone's crazy. And she realizes her boss was actually a crazy person too, just pretending to be the boss. Yeah. So <laughs> with this, to your point, there's all this extra shit, right? But none of that is plot. You know, you got LL Cool J running through the field. Doesn't matter. He clearly wants to fuck his cousin. Doesn't matter. All these extraneous things that are there, but the plot is simply Robin Williams needs to man up and take the job. And it's one of those interesting mm-hmm. elements where I don't know. It's it's fascinating to me the amount of you know, disjointed elements to this when it's just a, a one sentence plot. And do you think that the characters are charismatic enough to carry all of these like little tangents or these little riffs that almost become like a sketch movie to get to that one sentence plot? Yeah. And that's, that's the issue with it too. That's why I feel like it didn't really take off at the box office because people weren't ready for this. It's like, I don't want a fucking, you know, Twin Peaks, uh, you know, heavy movie. I'm here to watch. I just watched Home Alone 2 and I snuck into toys thinking it was another Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, no one wants an impressionist film for the holidays, you know? And like I said, some of the stuff they show in the ads and stuff, it's like this, you know, you see the comedy with the uh, with him just doing his improv and then it shows some stuff from the action scenes and you think you're going to see that. It's like, oh, I want to see toys fighting, you know, war toys. So you don't get that until the hour and a half. And I know, I, like I said, I bring it back, but as a kid, we watched it and we always fast forwarded to an hour and a half in because yep. yeah it just it builds up to that it's like it's like foreplay that takes two hours and then 
then you come at the last second. And it's like, oh, well, I forgot about that. If that makes sense. Uh, completely now, does. back to the question, Jake, about like if thinking if your daughter would follow this, would you show your daughter this like or do you see this? And it's like, wow, this is too dark for her to see. Like, well, I mean, because it was marketed back then as children mm-hmm. kind of thing. I'll tell you this. If I, you know, based on the marketing, I could see falling victim to it. But I had a thought, as I sometimes do. Usually it hurts. If you, y'all have seen the movie Small Soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. It's I the love same that movie. fucking movie. You might recall we <gasps> did demonic toys in juxtaposition to Small Soldiers years ago on this show. And that movie is toys. It is military toys fighting educational, calm, nurturing toys. And the Gorgonites, thank you very much. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, Gorgonites. <laughs> man. Okay. But I'd rather have her watch that movie, which is incredibly violent by comparison, where you have arms mm. being ripped off and the Frankensteinian recreation of a character, kid getting shot in the leg with corn cob thingamajigs. It was that, fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Compared to this movie is what I'm saying, Adrian. <laughs> okay. Margarita okay. Adrian. Oh, I know. I'm gonna shut up now. <laughs> you also broke your green screen. <laughs> well, no, Dan, Dan broke the green screen trying to get Stella out of this room. So <laughs> this is this is my life. Okay. <laughs> oh, Dan, she, Dan opened the door. He's like, who's this guy next to me in the bed? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, that, that's a good way of putting it there. Because the thing is, I don't think, and the thing is, I didn't understand it as a kid. Like I said, I, I love the, the war stuff. And I think that's a good thing that you'd show her, you know, uh, small soldiers, because that's basically just gremlins, yeah. you know, for the 90s. Joe Dante. Uh, very much yeah. so. Very much so. Wow. Yeah. I never thought about that. And just little monsters running amok. So, but they're so cute, and the Gorgonites like I just love him so much. I want to keep him forever. Well, the no? Gorgonites are just the version of Gizmo, technically. I know, they're so, so cute, basically. Okay. Yeah, but that's what you—that's what you come down to as a kid. I think you'd enjoy the last half hour, which would make it a great short film. But as an adult, just just think of the parents going in to watch this movie with their kids. You know what I mean? It's like the adults are enjoying, and the kids are like, "Mommy, is it almost over? I need to go to the bathroom." You know, and it's just. And then as a parent, you get frustrated. It's like, okay, when when is this movie actually going to take off? What's going on? And I think that would ruin the experience for a lot because this is a movie to sit down with a glass of wine or, uh, you know, other some other film snobs there that go like, oh, I pay $7.50 for this glass of, uh, you know, venti latte mochaccette with three pumps of foam. And I only enjoyed the tree of life and those Christopher Nolan films. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? But if you're a parent watching that, you know, I don't have fucking time for that. You're breastfeeding and you're spilling milk all over the place while they're trying to understand philosophical scenery like the ones in toys yeah a whole movie <laughs> takes place before it gets good like it's a, a whole 90 minutes before anything interesting happens like for a and child there's so many for different us, I mean, tones yeah. yeah well there's there's cute like the, so the dollhouse when the house comes down like a like a, oh, i love that imagery like a, what is it a pop-up house or whatever that's really cute yeah like a like, book yeah yeah, those are fun. I I don't see anybody really giving a shit about it, though. You're right. So at this point, I don't even know. It's probably why my mom was annoyed, or maybe she didn't even watch it with me because it sucks so bad. I don't even know. <laughs> like, I can't imagine my parents sitting through this movie. Like, they took us to see Jurassic Park, and we were too young. What was that, 91? 90, 90, yeah, I 93. So, yeah. My brother was like two or three years old, and they were at 
my mom tells me the story that they were judging my mom for bringing us because they said it was an adult movie. Mm. Yeah. So my brother was a baby. So the minute the T-Rex came out, I ate the guy off the toilet. Steven started screaming. So Steven hears this episode, I'm telling the world and started screaming. My dad was laughing his ass off and we all had to go because it was a big thing. So <laughs> thank you. Know, Steven. But like, you know what I mean? Like, but you think, but I feel like back then, because things aren't the way they are now, like we can just Google it and we can figure out like what the fuck something's about for taking your kids to see it. Back then, like you're like, you saw two trailers. You're like, all right, let's take our fucking kids. Get the fuck out of the house. Well, it's so easy to I get hooked. Like, yeah, you were yeah. getting. Yeah. Now you yeah, have people suing over that. TV spots. Exactly. I remember there was a lawsuit about the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling because it was marketed as if it was going to be Fast and the Furious. And somebody's like, what the fuck did I just watch? Arguably, oh God, Drive so is good. a horror movie, by the way. And so good. I, I, that's it, completely indicative of this. That's just the way it used to be. You, sometimes you watch a movie and it's completely different. And that's what this is. Like They talk yeah. about sex, drugs, violence. None of this stuff needs to be with a kid's movie. And I think that's why, again, I think this is meant to make you unnerved from the very beginning. Doug, do you have any closing points before we get to the interview? And then we get to Jake's calamitous game of crazy pants. Ooh, games. Yeah, let's go ahead and get to that. Well, let, let's go ahead and go down to it here. I do have to say the stuff for, in terms of horror, uh, it, it, I'd say Ball and Dolly, I think, are the, probably the scariest thing in this movie. Because when, when LL Cool J is running down that hall and all those lights are going off and you see those two toys, that's that's something that we would repeat. And it's, it's, a, it's a minute scene, but man, that just always stuck with me. And you know what I mean? That's, that's what this movie gives you. If you take something, it's like throwing a bunch of uh, kind of disturbing imagery at the wall. A lot of stuff's fallen, but something will stick. And that always stuck with me, too. So that's why I always classified it as horror. Um, like, I, like I said, with Willy Wonka, that could be. But I mean, that's more in story driven. But you see this at a young age, which, you know, it technically was marketed towards kids because yeah. they even made a fucking Super Nintendo game. Which is bad. For it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And images mm. like that just stick. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I remember watching Courage the Cowardly Dog as a kid. And, you know, it was funny Night for the most part, but I always remembered uh, King Ramsey's like just that imagery. Like it's meant to stick. with Oh, you. yeah. Question. What the fuck is a sea swine? You never fully see it. I always thought it looked like the yeah. uh, the thing from Star Wars when they fall into the uh, dumpster bin that's crushing. I, I thought, thought it looked it like that. Oh, yeah. What is like the More glare like on the TV? I'm like, what is that? Okay, yeah. That's the new kids' toys. Everyone's gonna want to see swine. You know, parents want a fucking water slug going over their thing and then blowing holes in people's heads. Yeah, it just had like cannons coming out of orifices and like the little flappy, you know, plumbuses sticking off of it. He's like, don't move. Like it's like a T-Rex or something. Don't move. Yeah. Vibrate. Yeah. So. I don't know. That that was that, that was terrifying. That was like something out of the ring. Like, what the fuck is in this like well? And like LL yeah, and Cool just, J is trying to save him. <laughs> like, it's that? like I thought there was gonna be a little bit more of a payoff there. That was my gripe. Well, he did make a pretty oh, good joke. He's one. like, he's like, it's 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 big, it's wiggling, and it's heat seeking, and it's not me trying to eat me or <laughs> trying to eat me or mate with me. <laughs> so you know what I mean? There's comedy in the horror. Like I said, if there's uh, you know what I mean? If it's like watching Eraserhead, but if there was, uh, you know, Robin Williams was replaced uh, with the main guy from Eraserhead, that would that would be this movie. You just kind of give it some. <laughs> Before we cut to the interview, though, none of us have mentioned Alsatia, aka Jim Cusack, and then oh, my 
favorite part like, of this movie. We're not oh, even yeah. fucking talk about her after all of this. Well, see, because there's so much to ingest in here. And, and then a lot of it, we start talking about our own self, like kind of that's what it does. Yeah. That, that's what this well, movie does. Doug, what do you think of Alsatia? That's your episode. Oh, I love to reflect. Yeah. Okay. So honestly, like she dresses like she looks like a couch from 1993. Um, (laughs) That's how everyone dresses in this movie. But I think she's the one that stuck with me the most as a kid. And even watching it now, like anytime she was on, it's like, oh, man, you know, she's like a cheaper version of Johnny Five. Granted, she's a little more annoying and weird, but I, I enjoyed her a lot. She's not she's not like Debbie from Adam's Family Values, which I'm like, man, how did she go from hot to looking like a fucking couch? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, she does look terrible. This movie. I think that was the point, right? But that was the style in the 90s. My so mom fantastic. used to dress like that. They're all our moms dress yeah. like that. So, <laughs> she reminds me most of like Adam said it's Edward Scissorhands. She mm-hmm. she isn't a person. She's retrofitted to be a person. Edward is a tool. She is a toy. And she depicts herself as having this profound understanding of humanity at points. You know, she is encouraging and condescending. She is a very complex character that's reduced to being a toy. It's interesting because, again, doesn't add anything to the plot of the film. It's not as though she's the heir apparent and then you find out she's a toy and then it has to go to let. No, it's just the fact no. she just happens to be a toy. And it goes right back. Supporting fun character. But that's what makes yeah. her probably the most fun is the fact of she is an observer in this film more mm-hmm. than anybody. She does not really push the plot. I mean, because think about it. While she does help with the music video, she's not the one who goes in and sees what's happening. She's just there. She's basically accoutrement. And I think that's one of the things that makes her interesting yeah. is she's observing these people. And to an extent, she is kind of what I viewed as the lens of the film because we're watching things through her perspective more so than Leslie because Leslie, you have those moments of introversion. So like, yeah, going back to the poster analysis, blah, blah, blah. But here she is watching everybody and there are scenes where she's just there and nobody realized. Like when Robin Wright goes to the restroom, she's that's just there. The she doesn't have to piss yeah. if she's a toy. She's there yeah. because she's observing people and that's what we are as the audience doing. But even when she yeah. goes to the field to talk to her father, right? So yeah, she, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I ha- yeah, I have that in my, my notes too. That was kind of an emotional scene. I don't know what it was like when she's going to talk to the grave and then Leslie comes by. I don't know why. I just felt that was a very emotional scene for no real reason. And then the shit started laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She reminded me too of uh, Bernadette, <laughs> Bernadette Peters from uh, Heartbeeps. If you've ever seen that movie, where they kind of mm. play like the, that was a that's a weird movie too. What she reminded me very much of, and a lot of this, uh, just Umbrella Academy. Uh, I don't know who's read it or seen it, but there's a character in that in, in the comics and the show that kind of plays that same exact role. To where it's it's not so much of a driving force. It, it, it doesn't need to be there, but it. It just helps. And it's Gerard Way has that same kind of cartoony tongue in cheek, but cute cartoony, but very dark. I, I'm that postmodern German impressionist. Yeah, kind I was going to say it's going cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like you do get a lot of yeah. just feelings like that where it's like, I don't know what to make of this, but it's it's shooting something in my mind here. Yeah, like reading a lot of uh, Gerard Way's material like Umbrella Academy and just his Killjoys books and just just a lot of his art related to his music. It kept going back to me there. But yeah, Joan Cusack was amazing in this. Like my hands down favorite part of this film, just the quirkiness. Like it just, oh, I loved it. 
I loved it so much. I want just a whole movie of her. And see, if you're stone, this movie really opens up your third eye, too. So <gasps> like that's opening up uh, Robin Williams third eye right there. So, yeah, yeah it's it, it, we're, OK. Honestly, were you guys expecting this to be pure horror or did you think this was a lot more mm, sophisticated and, you know, thesis driven of a film more than a horror? I guess that really would it because honestly, like I, I really don't know. what. To, sometimes I think it's horror. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think it's German expressionism. Just in 1992. I would say this easily is a horror film in the sense of the experience. For instance, let's look at a movie like Combat Shock. Combat Shock is not scary. Combat Shock is a movie where the guy has a a baby that has mustard gas disease and is deformed, right? And it just makes an awful sound. That's a horror movie. And the kill count is relatively low. This movie, I think, if I do the math, might even have a higher kill count. But it's it's delivered in such a way that it's an experiential horror movie. You know, it's one of those things where you ever see like those thought things where like somebody picks up a glass, but instead of pouring it in the mouth, they put it just to the side and pour it out. Those things that are meant to make you uncomfortable. I think this is an experiential horror. I think this is an art piece that is from the very beginning not meant to be gratifying. I think that whole scene with the Christmas thing, I, I defiantly think is a reshoot. Everything from thereafter is askew enough until the very end, which is the most traditional ending ever uh, to, to wrap it up. I think easily I qualify this as horror. Dub. I want to compare this now just because you said this and it just hit me. It's kind of another movie like this that I wasn't a fan of, but it, it's totally reflecting in my mind now is uh, Midsummer. Oh, okay. Perfect. Just That's what lingering. I was going to say too. Yeah. Very, very bright and happy in parts. And then there's just some psychological darkness through out and i'm gonna give that movie another watch i i saw midsummer it didn't click with me i'm gonna give it another watch but yeah this this kind of felt like that but it clicked better with my brain yeah if my kids ever go on a coma and i suddenly have 40 extra hours to myself a week i'll watch midsummer again <laughs> well adam brought up a good point though because i did feel like very midsummer where it's for example you're in this open field you can easily escape but it just feels like you're stuck in just this this kind of rectangle of space and it's like you can't yeah. escape it's like a nightmare it's like get me the fuck out of here i want to run but i can't what's going on and it's you know that's the maitlands trying to leave their house in beetlejuice exactly or and that's, WandaVision. that's sandworms out there just nothing yes i watched wandavision i finished it it was delightful good for you i did i did I'm a so thing glad. i watched however many hours of television yeah that was a good day. I'm, I'm glad you consumed that. That was a, it was a really fun one. Yeah. Prompted me to start rereading the vision comic with the family and stuff and mm. that inspired me to start reading Mark Wade's Captain America. And then that started me reading his fantastic four. And now I'm like, Oh God, remember when Dr. Doom draped himself in the skin of his first love. There's a lot of good stuff. So really hard. <laughs> I, I, I get addicted and I'm like, Oh God, why am I talking to you guys when I could be reading a comic book that came out 20 years ago? Adrian, do you think this is a horror film? Yes, I, I do. Honestly, it's when you said it, I knew because I remember it scared me. I, and I don't even remember why it scared me when I was a kid, but this movie scared me. And now thinking back on it, like there's a reason why it's a little strange, but it's not even that. It it's ingrains just, itself. It does. It stays with you. I think that. There's, it's not, it's not funny enough to be a horror comedy. It's just unsettling. And we talked about this earlier with, yeah. with when something gives you anxiety, because I'm the same way. Like if I 
I get anxiety when people get embarrassed and things, or I get anxiety when there's anxiety happening to other characters, which is why I like it. Like it hurts me to watch certain horror films because I'm like, I can't sit here through this because I feel, you know, like I feel what they, like, I don't want to feel that, you know what I mean? Like, I just want to watch someone get killed and have a good time. Right. So this is definitely an anxiety inducing happy uh, on the facade, a happy film, but it's not. As Adam would say, there's a lot of layers to this, especially with the themes and, of course, with the with the imagery, with the machines and the factory itself, like spitting out baby heads. I feel like there's a whole other commentary to talk about, and we just don't have time for that. So, yes, it's a horror movie. I like what you said about it not being like a horror comedy. I mean, even though there is like so much comedy throughout, it's just played so dry. It just doesn't come off as like your traditional comedy in that sense when it could be. Yeah, it's, it's not Tucker and Dale versus evil. It's not something that you can exactly giggle with and, and have fun. It's not even Shaun of the Dead kind of thing. Yeah, and this is like a, one of those weird movies that tries to be nominated for an Emmy or an Oscar or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it's, it, that's, mm. it just makes it weird. I, I, it, in the 90s were a weird time. And you know me, I'm the bizarro man. I love all these bizarre films. And I feel like this is one that just kind of... <laughs> It's it's an experiment on on film. You just got to experience it yeah. for yourself, and that's what makes it the horror. One thing I didn't touch on was Ferdinando Scarfiotti did the design work. That is not mm. a children's designer. You know who you get to do a toy movie? You get FAO Schwartz. You get you get the yeah. Fisher Price people. This is not a toy guy. In fact, the movie he did right before this was Fair Game, featuring one Bill Mosley. Huh, I wonder what he's been in a bunch of stuff. He also did <laughs> Scarface. <love> That's <laughs> what I mean. This was not a <laughs> child person. This person was sought out. He won an Academy Award for The Last Emperor. This is not a guy who was doing cutesy schmoo. This is very specifically not that. You, you. There's yeah. a dearth of movies that came out in 1992 that were children-oriented. You could have found any of those designers. They found a guy who yeah. they made work painstakingly for a year to come up with this shit. It's meant to be fucking terrifying. Oh, yeah. And, and the thing is, too, I, I have the DVD here, and I just realized on the DVD it says PG-13 for language, sensuality, and um, what does it say? It just says graphics. I've never seen that before, but it's weird. I remember the tape being PG. So maybe they've come to their senses. Like, oh, we can't let this. This is like giving LSD to kids. Probably was yeah. Pete. It was, no, because is that the. Oh, well, I'm looking at your screen. It's PG-13 there. But I, I feel oh, like it was remember. PG back then. Because, yeah. and, and, you know, we've talked about this before, but my, the biggest thing that if you're going to say something's PG, like back in the 80s, 16 Candles yeah. was PG and they showed fucking boobs in that movie. Full blown out boobs, like they centered on her tits in the shower. And it was, quote, PG. Parental guidance. Hey, Billy, those are tits. You might spend a large portion of your paycheck and future earnings to see tits. Now, check out those areolas, son. That's some guns. Areolas is the best segue I could come up with for my interview with Richard W. Haynes, director of one class of Newcomb High. But we didn't focus on that. Reason being, I did this interview after our troll march. So I wanted to give this guy a platform to talk about all of the films that he had done aside, which include films like Space Avenger and Splatter University. Some really interesting stuff. Head Games, for instance. I think that he's a very interesting person to put into this episode because of the nature of his work. He's also a film scholar. He's written books as far as preserving film and also become a novelist. I wish I could have asked him what he would have thought about this film, but find out what I ask him about a bunch of other nonsense now. 
So this is Slashers, at least the interview portion of the show, which I still am not entirely sure how to introduce. My name is Jake, and with me for the first time is my new best friend, Richard W. Haynes. How are you this morning, sir? I'm fine. Yeah. Although technically it's uh, 3 o'clock here in the afternoon in New York. Oh, I'm sorry. You're in the, the cultured area of the world, and I'm with the, the slovenly West Coasters. I apologize for my uh, geographic difficulties. <laughs> uh, apology accepted. Thank you so much. Now, uh, we had already just completed an entire month of trauma, so I really wanted to focus with you on your post-trauma career because, as we were discussing, I think we both find it way more fascinating, and I think that our audience, who includes a lot of filmmakers, could really appreciate your efforts, your gumption, your drive, your guile, whatever you want to call it, where you're getting all of these projects done basically entirely by yourself. Uh, essentially, that's right. Of course, I hired people to help me, and I have some veterans, but uh, I financed them myself, and I set up a competing company uh, called New Wave Film Distribution Inc. So I also marketed uh, my movies as well, uh, and I got to admit that so I learned how to do that from Troma. So they're really good salesmen, so I learned a lot how to do it. Uh, from them, but then branched off into my own. I made what I think the joke is if I made B films, uh, you know, way back in the trauma days, I made B plus films afterwards. <laughs> I tried to have really good production value, uh, really good photography, and so forth, uh, better special effects. So I try to make B plus films but within the same very, very low budget. Just a matter of planning. You have to be really, really careful how you plan it and allocate your funds. Oh, absolutely. When you look at what you did with the Space Avenger, it's crazy to me how much you were able to accomplish with the projected budgets that I've seen online. I mean, like you said, cinematic film quality, great creature effects, practical effects. And geez, just the squibs alone in that movie must have cost you 50 grand, right? No, of course not. Uh, I don't spend any money on anything. I just, <laughs> I get Peter, I get people on the way up and on the way down, as the saying goes. So on the way up, I got a lot of talented young people who wanted their first break. And, you know, I paid them, of course, but, you know, since they're just beginning, uh, they didn't get as much as they later would. A guy called Wilfer Caban was my pyrotechnic technic guy on that film, and I think he did Head Games. He might have gone on to, no, he wasn't in new, he wasn't on Run for Cover. Anyway, he did at least a couple of my films, and he did all the explosions and squibs and stuff like that. That's awesome. I mean, what a job, right? Just getting paid to make things explode. Who could ask for anything yeah, more? Yeah, I don't even know if they do them anymore. I think they do them digitally now. I don't think the insurance will cover it, but back then they would. Uh, that's the key. Uh, back then, the ins- as long as you had a licensed pyrotechnician, uh, that was covered under the uh, insurance that you have to get in a film. I don't know if they do that now, so I think they add the squibs digitally after the fact. Yeah, I think it's cheaper always around because... It doesn't look as good, but it is well, it's cheaper and easy to do. No, it's not cheaper. Everything digitally is astronomically expensive. Uh, it's actually cheaper to do everything on film, but that's another story. Yeah, actually, it's You don't one save those... any money doing digital. It's much, much more expensive than film. We, so. I had seen that when you were talking about switching out of basically being a film production company. Now, you with New Wave Distribution, you are marketing your catalog. And one of the things that you kind of prompted your shift into being an author was the digital craze. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, my career basically was uh, roughly 30, uh, 30 years, which is pretty good for this racket, which is 81 to 2000, uh, 2011. Yeah, that's about right. And uh, then uh, the switch in digital kind of wiped out indie filmmaking, at least if you want to do it on film in the New York area. All the labs closed. In fact, the uh, lab link, uh, when they were doing What Really Frightens You, that was the last film they actually processed here before they folded and then people switched to digital. Uh, the trouble with digital, of course, is is reserving it. You have to output it back to film, which is really, really expensive if you want to have a hard copy for the future. And there's no permanent digital format to keep changing them. So 
Yeah, right. You know, it's like shooting something in on video back in the old days. I mean, you know, two inch video, then one inch and VHS, three quarter inch are all obsolete. So with film, at least you have a hard copy of something that's essentially going to be around forever because all old movies are on 35. So you have a 35 negative of your film, you're pretty much set for the future. If you shoot it digitally and don't have a hard copy, uh, the film could become lost or in some format no longer accessible. So. Uh, I didn't want to get involved with that. Plus, I do some experience on how to light film. I understood how to make a, you know, how to light an emulsion and all the nuances and different formats. So uh, I just got out of it. And plus, <laughs> by nature, all the labs and everything closed, mixing studios, everything folded in New York right afterwards, like dominoes. And I can't afford to move to the West Coast and try to do it there. So I got into novel writing instead. But they're movie themed novels, and they would make good movies. So. Yeah, when you read, because I was able to read excerpts because your trilogy, the uh, 24 frames per second, if I'm not mistaken, uh, each one details with film. And I think that it's clear that this is, these are very analogous to scripts. And I think that... Well, I would have made them as movies if they still had film on this coast. (laughs) So I just did them as books. And uh, a lot of them are somewhat autobiographical because, uh, you know, when I was discussing, like, in Real Danger, the exploitation films and stuff like that, uh, you know, I knew the, I knew most of the exploitation filmmakers back then or producers, directors, and distributors. So I worked in some of those funny stories about those that. And uh, a couple of my books turned out to be uh, prophetic, which is interesting. In Real Danger, it's about the hunt for a missing porn film that a politician may or may not have appeared in. Uh, the story was a politician who, when he was in college, he did something stupid. He let him shoot a money to let him shoot a porn film in his dorm room and he participated. Now he's got to find every copy of that and destroy it because if it's released, the end of his career. Ironically, right after that book came out or not too far afterwards was the uh, Anthony Weiner scandal where sure enough, uh, he was sending porn images to people and he was running for mayor of New York and that pretty much killed off his career. Oh yeah. And the other one was production value where they're pretending to shoot a movie, but they're not. They're actually smuggling drugs in film cans right into the nose of the police who are supervising it. And after that book came out, there was a bus in the New Jersey airport and sure enough, they were smuggling drugs in film cans. So I hope I didn't give someone an idea. Yeah, right. It, that would be anyway. It. That's kind of ironic. Two of those things turn out to be life imitates art. So. Yeah. Hopefully, you're not implicated in anything. I think that you have plausible deniability in this case. Uh, who knows these days? But yes. <laughs> yeah. And you've also written other books, which I think is fascinating. Going back to you know analog versus digital. Like one of your books was the history of dye transfer printing. Uh, yeah, that just came about. Uh, a bunch of my friends suggested I do it, and. I was very into the whole film preservation element, and in 1979, 1980, it turns out all the Eastman color, before they had the low-fade stock in 83, was fading. So the only stuff that seemed to be lasting was the dye transfer technicolor. So I did a lot of research, how the process worked, and I got a huge uh, uh, coup there. Uh, The Chinese uh, had bought up the British technicolor equipment, and they were still making dye transfer prints in China. So they offered to fly me out there as sort of an international publicity thing. And I made the prints of my third film, Space Avenger, in real three-strip Technicolor. And of course, uh, it got me entertainment tonight and variety and, you know, film festival stuff all over the, uh, the country and world, really. And it helped launch it. But then I had so much data about Technicolor, I decided to go ahead and write a book about it called Technicolor Movies, which came out in 1993. The other book, I was noticing the the movie-going experience was sort of declining. Uh, I saw it, I guess, in its peak in the 60s and 70s when I was uh, going to NYU. I used to go to the huge 
70 millimeter houses like the Rivoli. I saw 2001: A Space Odyssey and a Curse at the Rivoli in Spielberg's 1941. I went to the Cinerama Theater and saw some music. There. They had a musical festival in 79 and 70 millimeter their curved screen, like My Fair Lady and stuff. And all the revival theaters were great, like the Regency, the Elgin. One by one, they were folding like dominoes and being replaced by pretty substandard megaplexes until there was nothing left. So I started chronicling that and decided to write a book about uh, essentially the decline in exhibition from Roadshow to Movie Palace to a Little Meg- Megaplex, sort of like the equivalent of a junk food restaurant instead of the spectacular experience of going to the movies. So yeah, that's it, how that came about. It definitely loses the allure when you just are crammed into what is effectively a closet with a big speaker next to your head, right? Uh, yeah, but the, there is a remedy for it uh, with the digital projection now. You can get a 4K projector, even a 1080p DLP. Just create your own home theater at home. You can do everything with decorations and posters and a marquee. I got it all. So what I ended up doing is just building one myself <laughs> so I could see movies the way they were supposed to be. My setup is uh, I'm set up for 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, and digital projection. And I even have a portable curved cinerama screen and a polarized uh, silver screen for dual, dual uh, projector 3D. So I just set it up at home because it was obviously gone in theaters. So Yeah. I mean, so COVID hasn't hit your movie-going experience at all. Do you feel bad about no, people I stopped who are- going. The last film I saw in a theater was uh, Tarantino's uh, The Hateful Eight, just because I wanted to see 70 millimeter. I hadn't gone since then. So, Yeah. I mean, what do you think about this generation who's going to grow up basically on their couch watching Netflix for their you know, cinema intake? Uh, well, they should probably get a hard copy because uh, with some of the cancel culture, they started to ban movies or censor them. So maybe they should have a hard copy so you can see your favorites before they're no longer shown. <laughs> yeah, that's a very fair point. Well, again, it's, it depends. You can set up a home theater that is as good as you know a movie theater in the past. So just set up your own movie theater if you want. You can get an 8-foot to 10-foot screen, and if you're sitting on a couch, you're so close to it, it's essentially like sitting like in the middle of a movie palace with a large screen there because, you know, it fills your peripheral vision and you'll get the movie going experience. Mm-hmm. To a certain degree, it's actually better because uh, you can customize the surround sound so the surrounds are not too loud and the center channels are right volume and everything. Even in the best of the movie palaces, if you sit way in the back of the Lozaster Plaza where I saw Star Wars, you're getting mostly surround. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so you can customize the audio so it's actually perfect for your environment because, in general, movie theaters, even at their best, were sort of a compromise depending on where you were sitting. I remember going to the Rivoli and Cinerama theaters in New York in the 70s, and just out of curiosity, I used to sit in the center, so you filled your peripheral vision. I went up to the balcony, I went to the side things, and boy, you saw a distorted image there on the curved screen. So oh, it really yeah. was only ideal for the center seat. So even in the best of the movie-going experiences, there were a lot of compromises involved. If you set up your home theater, there's no compromises. Make it uh, so it works for you. That's brilliant advice. Now, in terms of other media that you've consumed, I had seen online that you were a big collector when it came to uh, the Castle of Frankenstein, famous monsters of Filmland. And did that inform you? Because I had also read that you were a bit of a comic artist, which inspired the Space Avenger. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, glued to the tube, and I was a movie buff as a kid. So I collected Super 8, then later 16 and 35 prints. Uh, I, uh, I have every issue of Castle of Frankenstein. I like that somewhat better than Famous Monsters, which was fun, but it was kind of jokey. The Castle of Frankenstein took it a little bit more seriously. And uh, what also happened, ironically, one of the writers there was William K. Everson. I had all of his film books. And then when I went to college at NYU, he was one of my teachers. So that was kind of exciting to actually get to meet the guy that wrote so many of the books. Another one of my teachers was uh, Leonard Morton, who taught a comedy course and a silent film course, comedy course, and an animation course. And then later he 
put me on entertainment and I interviewed me when I did the Technicolor trip. So that worked out well, too. So I actually got to meet some of the people I used to read the books of uh, when I went to NYU. And Joe Dante was one of the uh, writers of Castle of Frankenstein, too, by the way. So that's how he started. Later, I did the illustrations for my father's children's book, Animal Kingdom. Uh, so that's available. Oh, yeah, and because of that, I did Space Avenger. One of the things I wanted to be, uh, before a filmmaker, was wanted to be a comic book artist. So I kind of worked that into the story of Space Avenger, about a comic book artist, which it turns out is fictional characters are real. So that's a, sort of the general theme of a lot of my movies, Life Imitates Arts, where people are interacting or their fictional characters are, are coming to life or they're interacting with them. Uh, Unsavory Characters was like that, too. A guy is having a hell of a time finishing his Pulp Fiction book, so he picks up a femme fatale in the bar and gets involved with murder and intrigue, and he uses that to finish his book. Again, Life in the Tate's Art is a general theme. Which is fascinating. I mean, that noir style can be so rich and complicated, and are there any examples of film noir that you appreciate that you think kind of have withstood the steps of time? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess the most classic one is... um, Postman always rings twice, and that was one of my inspirations. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of them. Um, DOA, you know, most of the ones from the 40s. It uh, it kind of was popular in a post-war when people were cynical and came back. And then when it hit the Eisenhower era and it was more optimism, uh, it kind of fizzled out. So late, so mid-40s through early 50s was when most of them were made. And again, it reflected the culture of the time of sort of cynicism and world weariness after the war. Going even earlier, we kind of touched on prior to starting recording, your work on Splatter University. Uh, can you talk a little bit about th- that genre and how it reflected the culture at the time? Because it, it definitely there's a lot going on that I think that People watching it, you know, on YouTube or DVD now might not really grasp like the commentary there. Well, that was sort of just accidentally. It was made in, <coughs> excuse me, nineteen eighty one, and then it was too short, so I had to go back and refilm some scenes in eighty two. So just because you're using people from that time area, they got the huge hairdos, they dressed a certain way. So in that sense, yeah, it reflects you know, what the culture was like at the time. I wanted to, uh, I always wanted to make a movie. So after the first movie I worked on, which was Mother's Day, uh, I did the sound editing for it. And I also did the sound editing for a film called Madman. Uh, I started work on that film uh, while I was simultaneously editing the trauma exploitation films, uh, like you know, first turn on and stuff like that. So uh, we were making it over a period of time. Uh, my high school roommate, John Michaels, uh, was helping me and I rounded up all my friends and everybody I could find, a lot of them ex-NYU uh, students, and we made the film in 16 millimeter, and it took a long time to finish, and it is what it is. I mean, you know, it was very, very primitive and crude, but I guess it has kind of a cult following. Uh, I did it, to be quite honest, for the money. <laughs> you wanted something simple that you could make and would get released and make money. I didn't want to start making art films that couldn't get released. And then uh, that's really my only exploitation film. And then the next one I had great control of with Space Avenger. I, it's one of my B-plus films, as I call it. So, um, you know, it is, and it seems to have a cult following, which I appreciate. Is it frustrating to know that you've created such compelling art and then, you know, it kind of goes to the, the tree falling in the forest? Like, if your art is still profound, is it ever compromised by the fact that there's just the volume of stuff that's out and the ease of access that people have to a huge catalog of stuff? It might just get lost in the shuffle? Well, you got to keep promoting it, of course. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, you have no choice. You got to promote it. And uh, try not to get forgotten about. Um, mostly, <laughs> Splatter, I use that to, you know, get people to buy my other movies and books and stuff like that. So, uh, I did, it's my only film shot on the old quick fade Eastman color stock, uh, but I kept it in cold storage, and so it only faded about ten percent. 
and they made a 16 millimeter low fade SR base IP. So uh, that's okay. Now all my other films are on the low fade stock of uh, from 83 on, so I'm not worried about fading. But that was the only one made on the quick fade stock. Uh, by the way, I'm one of the few filmmakers I got involved with the preservation. All of my films are preserved. I have them deposited in an archive, and I even put in my, in my student films and my Super 8 amateur films here. So literally everything I ever made is preserved in an archive. <laughs> Who else can say that? And that's something I certainly recommend to young filmmakers is keep a copy, keep a negative, you know, keep whatever you can on it. Don't assume someone else is preserving your film. That's very foolish. Distributors, most of them are plastic films. They don't care about preservation. You really got to do it yourself. So. Uh, everything I ever made has been preserved. In my own vault, I have the outtakes and the premix elements and all that other stuff too. So I saved everything. That's profound, especially now that you have you know ease of access with like a Blu-ray and you have all of the bonus contents of things. The fact that yeah, yeah, I can go just go into the vault and I'm still cataloging what I got and see what the stuff I have. I mean, I saved the trailers, I saved TV spots, I saved the radio spots, you name it. Some of them are fun because some of them I can't use. Like I, I hired cousin Brucey to do a radio spot for. Uh, run for cover room because uh, there's some music in the background. I can't use it, but uh, I saved all that stuff. That's amazing. Now, is there ever any kind of impulse on your side to maybe document that in like a film documentary or anything like that? No, I never thought of it, but thanks for thinking about it. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> you don't even have to give me a, a producer's credit or anything. I'm happy to because I, I see these things and it just there's these rich treasure troves. Like I recently interviewed the guys who made uh, Redneck Zombies and they uh -huh. have hours of footage that are just going to be enjoyed by them. And it, not that I'm overly selfish and want to steal their stuff, but like I think that it's a great time capsule. And it also encourages people to be as ambitious as you. Because, I mean, we have to acknowledge like, you're, you're a, a rarity. Not everybody has the gumption to you know make their own film studio and then keep persisting and pushing and developing. Like A lot of people could have just fallen into obscurity when you know digital takes over. But then you created a new career that's very viable and you have a lot to show for it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I try, like I said, the key is to save everything and never assume someone else is saving your stuff. You've got to do it all yourself. Um, you know, this goes all the way back to the past. There were a couple of filmmakers who actually did save their films, like Howard Lloyd and uh, Charlie Chaplin. The rest just assumed someone was, and they lost them. So that's the key, save everything, or save a copy at least, so at least something exists. Um, I also saved some other films. I saved uh, one of the guys I was helping uh, uh, who co-produced uh, Head Games with me. He made an indie film called uh, The Suckling. And I ended up with a negative, and I said, keep it. So I put that in archival storage with my other stuff. And I helped Turk Harvey get Carnival of Souls preserved. I had seen the film on um, Channel 9, I think, when I was a kid growing up. It gave me recurring nightmares. And I tracked him down in 89. He was in Kansas, and he just had the negative in his house. And I said, we got to get that in an archive. So I made arrangements to have it preserved at uh, the George Eastman house, where it is now, and also had the film re-released. So... Uh, that was my little contribution to film history. One other minor one, um, I came across a preview print in Super Cinecolor, which is like Technicolor, it doesn't fade, mint of the Abbott and Costello film, Jack and the Beanstalk, which oh. is about five minutes longer than the movie, that uh, the version that Warner Brothers released. And I put that in archival storage, too, because so, there's no negative. The negative is lost on the film. So that's the best surviving element, a mint Super Cinecolor preview print, about five minutes longer on that particular movie, which I like. I mean, it's not one of their best films, but I like it. So those are a couple of films I preserved outside of my own. Yeah, and Abbott and Costello, literally like the best stuff. I, I, I do like the Marx Brothers quite a bit, but Abbott and Costello, their dichotomy, and you can see what's so great about their works is you can see various different versions. You hear the radio play, you see the one in the movie, you see the one on the TV show, and, and you can string them together and you can see how organic 
and clever and quick-witted they were, how adaptive. It wasn't just a static thing. Is that something that you miss about the nature of film in the, being able to develop the words beyond a script? Of course, yes. The thing about Adam Costello, too, they were very prolific. The Marx Brothers only made a handful of films, and Adam yeah. Costello made three times more films than they did, so you got that. Although really, by the 50s, they started fizzling out after their TV show and the two Super Cinecone musicals. But in the 40s, they certainly uh, made some of their my favorite flicks. I used to watch them on Channel 11 uh, every Sunday. Cut by 15 minutes, but still, uh, so I grew up with them, and I guess I liked them better than anybody. And also, since their nitrate was uh, relatively new, when they transferred the safety film, they were only like 10 years old. They're in the best shape of all the comedy teams. The others, like Lauren Hardy, were really battered and beat up, and they need a lot of work to restore them. Them, they're the Marx Brothers. They're still missing footage on horse feathers and stuff. So, Yeah, some of those are absolutely haggard, like you said, and... Yeah, it remains to be seen. If also, they were inspiration. I should mention, Amadeus Costello were very low budget films, but they had terrific production value. You can't tell; they really look good. Um, they, I know they're using leftover sets and stuff at Universal, but still, the production value was so much better than, say, the Marx Brothers or Lauren Hardy. So they had that going for them too. Yeah, and the diversity of backgrounds. You know, like they they go to Mars. Like that's amazing. You never see that with uh, the Marx Brothers. One thing, like you know, a night at the opera is is just a theater set. Like so many of these things are very easily accessible. You could. Any building can be a university when dressed correctly. So I definitely agree with that. The production value is superb. Yeah, much better than the other comedy teams. So. Yeah, Except for also- maybe Martin and Lewis had the Vista Division going for them, but they're my least favorite comedy teams now. But they did make theirs in Technicolor and Vista Division in the 50s, so they look really good. But Abbott and Costello, I thought, had the best photography. And they made two types of films, by the way. They made their vaudeville films and they made their narrative films. I prefer the narrative films, but I like both. The vaudeville films are like... Uh, fuck privates where they're not really the stars they're almost like a guest stars and there's another boring plot that takes up a lot of the running time and then the other ones are like Frankenstein and uh, Hold That Ghost where they're the stars of the movie and the plot revolves around them so they went back and forth through their whole career for those two types of films yeah and fr- when they meet Frankenstein that's literally my third favorite film ending of all time with the Vincent Price cameo with, as the Invisible Man I mean just indeed, before Vincent Price was well known too, he's more. It's like more famous now than it was back then. Exactly, because he didn't become a star until '53 with House of Wax. He was just a character actor by then. So in hindsight, that's a that's a much better ending now than it was when it first came out. Yeah, it wasn't even credited in the role at the point. I mean, that that shows how obscure. No, no, he, he was just a character actor at the time. Yeah. Then he became a star with House of Wax. So. And then you know, absolutely prolific since then. Are there any, let's say, like horror actors that you think should have been recognized or more heralded than they you know have been and kind of lost to history? Um, well, not really. I mean, so much of Lon Chaney's uh, senior stuff is lost. It's hard to herald them when, uh, you know, not everything exists. So uh, I guess everybody else has pretty much been covered. There you go. Are there any writers that you look at, whether uh, screenwriters or authors that you think, you know, my audience should go invest in? Yeah, uh, check out Billy Wilder because he used to write as well as direct movies. And his uh, his talent was taking really kind of reprehensible characters and making them likable. So check out films like uh, with Jack Lemmon in the apartment. He's essentially a corporate pimp. In Irma LaDuce, he's a cop who ends up keeping a prostitute. And in The Fortune Cookie, he's doing an insurance fraud, but he's somehow likable. So that's uh, that was a real talent to, to make these kind of crappy characters very, very likable. So I recommend the Billy Wilder films. Oh, wow. And, and much before the contemporaries with shows like Dexter and things where people have like a dark element but are still the, the protagonist. I think that sounds fascinating. Yeah, check those out, especially uh, The Fortune Cookie, which is uh, it's the first time they teamed uh, Lemon and Matha together. And Matha, again, was a character actor, but that movie made him a star, playing uh, 
the sleaziest ambulance chasing lawyer of all time. In fact, when you think of ambulance chasers, I always think of Matt, though, and a fortune cookie. Now, are there any projects that you're working on that you can talk about? Uh, that my... uh, Not at the moment. I'm still plugging my, my books. Uh, I joke, I'm 007. I wanted to make 10 movies. It didn't work out that way. So I'm 007. I made seven features, and I wrote seven books. So I'm still plugging and promoting them. I haven't really come up with a new idea yet, but I'm thinking. Uh, I did the trilogy of the What Really Frightens You, the feature, and the two book sequels. So who knows? Maybe I'll do a fourth one. Yeah, and you had mentioned wanting to do uh, some more political commentary about you know how basically our politicians mean to rule us when they're meant to represent us. And is there anything in the works there? Well, I kind of covered that in Soft Money, and and um, yeah, basically in Soft Money a little bit on uh, 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 Run for Cover too. Soft Money is about a politician running for office, but he doesn't have any money, so he hires three thieves to rob a bank for him, so he has money to run on. So uh, check that one out. That's kind of an off-the-wall plot, although maybe accurate, too. So who knows? Absolutely. And, you know, there's always time to make three more films. Just We'll get you going. We'll crowdfund you, and we can get you going from your novels oh, and wow. do your own adaptations. Now you can do it only better than Stephen I, King. Only if I can get an, a film lab open here. I can't, like, have a film process in California wait a week to see if it came out. So yeah, that was the point. reason I got out of it, because all the film labs closed. Uh, you know, I, I only shoot on film. I don't want to shoot digitally, so I only shoot on film. And without a film lab here, it's just not... Realistic or pragmatic to, uh, you know, shoot a scene, ship it to California to get processed, then you got to wait a long, long time to see if it came out or not. So you have to know the next day if you're shooting on film. Yeah, you don't so. want to shoot on an iPhone? That's not a goal of yours? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Not really. I admire that very much. Well, thank you very much. If you ever do have anything, projects you'd like to peddle in the future, you'll always have a home here with us. I really want to thank you for making yourself available today, and I'll make sure to include links to everything we can in the description of this episode. All right, thank you, and don't forget to send me. Um, uh, sorry, to make a copy of this. I'll make a gold uh, CD of this audio interview for my archive. I love it. I, I'll list. Okay. I'll exist in film history somewhere. If not, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I'll give it to the Academy where my stuff is. So then it'll be uh, with the rest of my negatives. All right, thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you whenever. Thank you. Stay safe. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. And that was my interview with one Richard W. Haynes. Please support him in all of his future endeavors. He has a book. He work, There's books. He can make more books. This is good. Books teach you words. Words get you roundabout to Jake's game, his crazy crapola, whatever, whatever name I called this earlier that I'm obviously going to remember. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yeah, okay. hang, just one second. One second. I'm not giving a second i'm gonna keep going <laughs> i'm not gonna be what uh, i explained to well i'm glad you guys thought it was horror i thought you guys were gonna say otherwise like ah, oh, it was just dull nah. no I, it's, i'm I, sorry i'm back i'm glad Come to on. own this one it's deeply unsettling yeah mm. okay so i'm making a score sheet so we have adam aid <laughs> and doug i have with me a list of phobias that i believe are related to the imagery in this film, if not outright the inspiration, therefore. And if you get it right, you get a point. Person who gets the most points gets to blow me. I don't know. We'll give you something. I'll send you a dollar. I'll Venmo you one dollar if you can get this, win this game with the most points. Are we ready to go? Oh, see. Coraphobia. What was that? Coraphobia or Coraphobia? Coraphobia. And I'm going to hold up. So this is Patreon exclusive content that might end up on B-Movie oh, TV. Who it's knows? the fear, fear of, of clowns. The fear of small spaces. That is incorrect. 
I'm gonna hold up five, and when I get to a close, people fist, fic- feces, you said chlorophobia, chorophobia, as oh, core like an apple core. No, as in a chorophobia. If I was saying it phonetically, chorophobia. Oh, hmm. well, I can't, didn't even hear. I it. don't know. I don't know. Though. <laughs> five, four, three, two, one. Open the, spaces. No fear of dance, which gets us oh. to our sensual happy workers who are like happy twerkers. Maliophobia. It's a fun um, fear one. Fear of hate. No. Fear of uh advancement. Fear of choice. I don't know. No and no. Fear of fear wigs. Of what? Fear of uh, what? Wigs. Plastic. Joan Cusack oh. wears several. <gasps> Pediophobia. Oh, yeah. Fear of children. Ah. Yeah, fear of having kids. Fear of growing out of being an adult. Yeah. That's what I thought it was too, but it's not. Adrian, fear of feet. Fear of electrolyte <laughs> drinks. No, this is fear <laughs> of dolls. Pediophobia. I thought it would have been pedophile. Uh, yeah. Well, here's so an easy funny. one. This one's easy. Agoraphobia. Uh, wow. Fear of outside uh, big open spaces. Agoraphobia. Open, yeah. Okay. Well, Adam mumbled it first, so he gets the first and only <laughs> point. Yay! Atikophobia. This is something I have. Seriously, fear um, of workplace. A, a stick up your ass. No, <laughs> it is a fear of failure, and I have a couple that are in the uh, subgenre here. And if you can get any of these, at this rate, I'll give you five points. If you get any of these sub ones, that's fair. Gamma phobia, fear of, of games. The Hulk, nah. afraid of games at losing at a game or something, right? Fear of giant afraid rocket of propelled turtles. That's a gamma joke. No, gamma phobia. Fear ah. of commitment. Oh, oh, Dan. <laughs> Metathesiophobia. Metathesiophobia. Oh, like, um, like acting, something with acting. No. Like a thespian. Afraid of yourself. Like no. your metathespian. A fear of change, as in metamorphosis. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I was like on the cusp. Tropophobia. I was close. Fear of moving or making change. Paralipophobia. <laughs> Or you can't change. This is the antithesis of Leslie. This is the other guy. Fear of neglecting duty or responsibility. So it makes him commit to it. Vehophobia. Easy one. Fear of bumper cars. I'll give it to you. Adam gets two points. It's a fear of vehicles. Fear of bumper cars. You're just just giving out the points. A maxophobia. Fear of tampons. Afraid of, yeah. uh, Afraid of a medium and a large. Nope. It's a fear of riding in a car. Achophobia. Fear of sneezing. I, <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, I hope all you viewers are writing this down and learning something because this is your learning lesson. Achophobia. It's a fear like of the vehicle you- itself. This is not going as well as I thought. I thought you would have fun. You all look very angry at me. Because you're, yes, I'm very angry because I don't get to answer and like they're just shouting hey, I'm out winning. shit. So, so what's going on? I'm sucking some dick tonight. Yeah, I was going to say, you got knee pads ready. And I hope for you listeners out there, too, you know, when you're watching this and trying to write your notes down while you're driving on the highway, uh, you can blame Jake when you trash your car and blow up and run around on fire. I will end my I have like a literally like a page of these. I didn't think I would go through all of them. I just had it just in case. I will give you the last one that I created. No, no, no. Keep going through them. It's like Mad Libs. Because I would like to win. Thank you very much. All right. We got. Sibophobia. Afraid of sippy beverages. Sibyl Shepherd. Okay, Adam, you're halfway there. If you could change what it is that's being ingested, I will uh, let you have fear half of a point. Fear of food touching? Fear of food. 
I will give you one third of a point for that. Okay, two and a third. Bathophobia. Afraid of baths, afraid of water, afraid of... Come on, Doug, keep going. Afraid of swimming. Afraid of douching yourself. If if it's water (gasps) and it's... You're drowning. Nobody uses that. How low can you go? The deep depths. Yeah, the depths. Fear of the oh, deep. No. Fear of the. Uh, sorry, Adam got it because he said depths first. I put that in because of the goddamn sea pig thing. Fucking uh, swine. This bro. one's great. <laughs> Taphophobia. Afraid of taffy. Fear of being buried alive by mistake, oh. which I took with that goddamn laughing. And here's another oh, one. Yeah, yeah. Coemetrophobia. Coemetrophobia. So it's man and women. Fear of security cameras. Fear of everyone living together in peace. Doug, you and I discussed a movie about a man who works in a. It's it's a sim. sim, A simp. Cemetery. Uh, Oh, cemetery. (laughs) Cemetery. Cemetery. Doug got his first point. (laughs) Fear of living in a cemetery. Was that what it was? Fear of living in a cemetery. Fear of graveyards. But yeah, cemetery, man. We should watch it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, metaphobia. Adrian has four of these in her screen right now. Fear of eyes. Wow. Adam, I'm going to put you on ice here for a second because I don't want to get stabbed in the neck by Adrian. (laughs) Here's one. Here you go. Sit here patiently. Ophthalomophobia. That is something I related. Involves (laughs) the eyes, but not the eyes themselves. Fear of wearing glasses, fear of losing vision, fear of seeing, fear of color loss, fear Not, of being seen. Oh, Adam. Holy five shit. Five and a third. <laughs> I don't Adam, know how I'm doing Adam, this. Just go away. Cholerophobia. Look at my thing is gone. Fear, it's of, fear of clowns. Fear of, fear of everything. I'm going to give it to Doug because I like him fear more. Right me. Now. I was going to say, I know that from Dead by Daylight. <laughs> so, know, hey, like, for hide and go eat. Stenophobia. Um, fear of heart failure. Mm, no. Fear of airplanes, fear of glass, fear of flies, fear of getting shot in the foot. There was one, there's a fear that everybody talks about being claustrophobia, but stenophobia is more appropriate to this film, I thought, which fear of open space, fear of fear of the um, opposite of open would be closed space. I'll give it to you. Claustrophobic spaces. Yep. Then we have the walls. We have clitrophobia or (laughs) clitrophobia. (laughs) This is vagina. Yeah, this okay. is uh, where you can't find the clip. I don't even know. So if I was G-spot. inside of a place that I couldn't escape, like let's say, like Doug said, I couldn't escape even though there were big walls, I would be enclosed. Enclosed. Enclosure. Fears of enclosure. Okay, Adam. Being enclosed. Fear of Adam, being you're not box. allowed to answer because I don't think anybody can beat you given the amount that I have left. <laughs> I'm going <gonna> be, <laughs> to be sucking so much dick. <laughs> What yeah. brand are you, you smoking? The Sativa Indica Hybrid Toys brand, uh, <laughs> Albert Einstein. I think that's what it is. Cherry Thunderfuck. Hoplophobia. 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 I'm afraid that this isn't working out. My bit is not working. I'm afraid of bra loss of uh, fear of jobs. 
Adam, shut the fuck up. Somebody. I feel like that, you know, fear of unemployment? Fear of unemployment? Fear direct, of employment. And yes. You guys are not being direct. Okay, Doug's only one and a third points behind. We're, this is, we're in a Doug, race. you have to win. Adam, oh, you're now allowed to answer again. Yes. <laughs> Ludectrophobia. Adam, or Doug, um, you mentioned that there's a ludectra. Fear sex. No, shut the fuck up for five seconds. Shoot ludectra. <laughs> God damn it. It's a, there's a ludectra that's based on this movie that came out for Super Nintendo. Oh, a video game. Fear of video ah, games. Fear of technology. Doug is only one third behind Adam. <laughs> I'll go Johnny Five Fish, Salmon, Sushi. Macrophobia. <laughs> fear of, uh, fear fish, of tiny fear, things. Fear of, uh, yeah, fear of minuscule People, fear of midgets, fear of leprechauns, fear of elves, fear of toys, fear of big things, large things. Oh, fear of time, fear of fisting, specifically because <laughs> chronophobia is time. This is yeah. oh, oh, fear of watches. My name is Tom Petty. <laughs> fear of breaking up, break hearts, falling. My favorite time. episode of Seinfeld they are at a Chinese restaurant and they have a long. Wait. Wait. Uh, Adrian Adrian got her first point. Adrian had it. Adrian had it. I gave it to you. Calm down. You didn't give it to me because you I just gave it to you. Calm down. Wait, what what was the answer to that? I gave it to you. Fear of long waits. Christ. Okay. Oh. So all that whole bit doesn't (laughs) count worth anything. This is our double jeopardy. This is the winner take all because Jake invented a phobia based on the film. So, Adrian, you could still win a dollar. I don't need to win anything. Endosomniornithobia. Fear of annoyance. Fear of flying elephants. Fear, fear of, uh, fear of people that look like toys or toys that look like people. So, endo is inside of. Somni Mm -hmm. is inside. Ornithophobia. Children inside of snowmen is birds. Joan Cusack. Falls. Oh my god, fear of sleeping inside of a duck. Yes. <laughs> fear of falling asleep yes. inside of a duck. Yeah, it's so that was so cringy too when she turns off the lights and goes, wow. It's horrifying. I want that That's bed. the scariest yes. thing I've ever seen on the show. The eyes just bring. Yeah. On. Well, what happens if you have to take a shit or go piss? You can't escape that duck until Doesn't, the morning. Because she's not a person. But I'm she saying a real person, shit. right? And like your parents coming into your room when you're like five years old, they're like, good night, sweetie. And they put that fucking duck bed on you. Yeah. Duck over you. And also, this is not to be confused with another my duck. I feel safest of all. The, I can the fictional duck doors. phobia by Gary Larson. Anatidaphobia, which is the fear that somehow, somewhere, a duck is watching you. And that has been my game that no one liked. I think I've lost Adrian as a lifelong friend because of it. But I had fun. Doug, did you have fun? Oh, I did. It made as much sense as this movie. But that's that's the phobia of it because I was unexpecting of it. You came in second place. <laughs> that's what I always hear. Yeah, the first is care? the worst. Second is the best. But I just mean, like it's, sex, it's, who wants rules. to finish first? That's selfish. Finishing second is great. Mm-hmm. A now... I'm giving over the reins. Doug, this is still your episode. So if you would like to send us through the rigmarole, we can get done. Yeah, let's go ahead and get it. All right. So how'd you guys enjoy that uh, that interview? Of course, you know, we tried to reach out to the people on this film. And Robin Williams has unfortunately passed away, but I don't think we'd be able to get an interview with him. And everyone else is too uh, 
high on the hog, uh, rich bastards. But that's okay because we got Richard Haynes. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Toys. I definitely recommend you seeking out. It's very hard to stream. Uh, it used to be on Prime, so the best way to get it is buy the DVD because maybe that'll push Criterion Collection uh, to release this <laughs> on Blu-ray. Because honestly, I think it should. Yeah, yeah. It definitely should. The visuals if, you do know, make sense for it. Yeah, if uh, you know, Eraserhead and uh, Sallow, 120 Days of Sodomy is released on Criterion. Why can't Toys? <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> but I digress. Fucking. Yeah, we got we got. So that was that was our maybe horror episode, uh, and we all agreed it was a it was a horror film, uh, you know, in some sort of experimental ooh. way. So without that, I'd just like to say you can follow me at Doug Bizarro on Instagram. I mostly use that. Facebook's full of old cranky boomers that argue about uh, Fox Eight News and stuff. Um, but I digress. You can find me there, and then I host a show on Friday nights at B Movie TV on your Roku. So Friday nights at eight PM. We show movies, exploitation action films, cars exploding, people running around on fire and, you know, all the wonderful traffic on the 405. But hey, Jake, what about you? I hear you have a show on uh, Saturday Night Tears. I do. It's it's on it's on Saturday nights and it's called Saturday Night Terrors and it's at 10 p.m. Hot tip. You can change the time on your Roku device unless you have a Roku TV. I sadly found out that one of my dear friends could not because automatically sets in that capacity. But if you had a little pluggy thing, you could change it so you could watch Jake in the afternoon, Jake in the morning. You could have a 24 hour loop of just Jake, which I mean, sounds delightful. Uh, I do only horror movies but lately my movies have been very putting a toe into doug's area lots of fun schlock and lots of fun schlock on the way i'm trying to add stuff like short films from directors that i like music videos from musicians that i like interviews from people who exist on this planet so check it out and you can also follow me at gacy jones on instagram or slashers pod is usually predominantly almost exclusively me adam so oh, you can uh, well, the, you can find me at otherboy underscore art. You can check out merch that I've designed for us over at our Redbubble. You can find all the links at our link tree, link tree slash slashers pod. Um, and also, if there's anything you guys want to see more of merch wise, let us know. Hit us up at uh, slashers pod at gmail.com. Let us know and uh, I'll. I'll get to doodling or the discord we, we have a public discord and a patreon discord and we review both of those and we talk on them so if you have shit that you want yeah have shit that you want there come say hi let us know oh adam that was a very smooth voice i felt like i was watching the weather channel all right and now Thanks, on to baby. a I have nothing i'm pathologically ade at instagram you can follow me on there sometimes i post fun things sometimes i don't but I think that the Patreon and the Discord are really great ways to get involved with this show, especially if there's something that you want to watch or see or, you know, hear us ramble on about. We'd love to do that. We're ready to work for you. So please make sure that you take a look at that and decide if you want to be a part of that. And truly, we we not just, you know behind a paywall with the other discord we also pitch ideas and get feedback and stuff before we put things a lot of thought goes into the show just saying it might sound off the cuff and ridiculous but we do a lot of work yeah yeah it's a full-time job so that patreon helps us uh support so i need a new mortgage on my second cardboard box for all you people out there (laughs) it is california but uh without further ado i hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, we'll get forward to uh hearing the feedback because i'm sure this will open up some of your retinas and third eyes and uh brown eyes maybe too you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) all them eyes all them eyes yeah because like i said now that we talk about it, i'm sure you guys will go out and hunt the film down now you need to it's it's an experiment 
Remember when I got the fear of eyes? Remember? Remember? Remember when I got that? Goodbye. Yeah, and good eye. That. And good die. <laughs> Bye, folks. <laughs>